additional radiation just makes Spider-Man more powerful. (laughs) Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Steph Vicari. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together, we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. Hey, Chris, what's new in your world? Uh, Fall is in the air. It's one of those, like, came out of nowhere. I knew it was coming. I knew it was going to happen. But now it's time for pumpkin beer and pumpkin spice lattes and exclusively watching the movie Hocus Pocus for the next month or so, uh, or some variation of those themes. But unrelated to that, I did a thing that I do once, uh, let's call it every year or so, where I had to make the evaluation between Sidekick or Active Job with Sidekick as the actual implementation, as the background job engine that is running. And I just keep running through this same cycle. To highlight it, Active Job is the background job system within Rails. It is a nice abstraction that allows you to connect to any of a number of them. So I think delayed job is one. Uh, Sidekick is one. Rescue is probably another. Um, trying to think. I'm sure there's a bunch of others. But historically, I've almost always used Sidekick. Every project I've worked on has used Sidekick. But the question is, do you use Active Job with the adapter set to Sidekick? And then you're sort of living in both worlds. Or do you lean in entirely and do you use Sidekick? And so... That would mean that your jobs are defined to include sidekick colon colon worker uh, because that's the actual thing that provides the magic as opposed to inheriting from application job. And then do you accept all of the trade-offs therein? And every time I go back and forth and I'm like, well, but I want this feature, but I don't want that feature, but I want these things. Uh, So I've made a decision, but I want to talk ever so briefly through the decision points that were part of this. Have Have you done this back and forth? Are you familiar with the annoying choice that exists here it's been a while since i've had the opportunity to make that choice i'm usually joining projects where that decision has already been made so i can't think of a recent time that i've thought through it and my current project is using that combination of where we are using active job and sidekick so i think there's even a a a middle ground there where that was the configuration that i'd set up on the project that i'm working on but you can sort of exist in both worlds and you can selectively opt for certain background jobs to be fully sidekick. And if you do that, then instead of saying perform later, you say perform async. And there are a couple of other configurations. It gives you access to the full sidekick API and you can do things like, hey, sidekick, here's the maximum number of retries or a handful of other things. But then you have to trade away a bunch of the niceties that Active Job gives. So as an example, one thing that Active Job provides that's really nice is the use of Global ID. So Global ID is a feature that they added to Rails a while back, and it's a way to uniquely identify a given record within your system such that when you say perform later, you can say like invitation mailer dot perform later and then pass it a user record. So like an instance of a user model. And what will happen in the background is that gets serialized. But instead of serializing the whole user object, because we don't actually want that, it will do the global ID magic. And so it will turn into like, I think it's GID colon slash slash, so almost like a URL. Uh, but then it'll be, I think your application name slash model name slash ID of that model. And so again, I, I don't really need to care about the details. That's just, it's a serialization format and a deserialization format on the other side. So when your job gets called down the road and the perform method actually gets invoked via the background system, then you will just get handed that uh, user record back, but it's not the same instance of the user record. It sort of like freezes it and thaws it. It's really nice. It's a wonderful little feature. Sidekick wants nothing to do with that. 
I'm so glad that you highlighted that feature because that was on my mind just, I think this week, where I was reviewing, somebody had made the comment where they were concerned about passing a record to a job and saying how that wouldn't play nicely with Sidekick. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, yeah, that's right. But then I was also, I'm pretty sure this got addressed though, and I couldn't recall specifically if it was a Sidekick enhancement or if it was a Rails enhancement. So you just cleared something up for me that I had not had time to confirm myself. So thanks. Well, to be clear, this works if you are using Active Job with Sidekick as the adapter, but not if you are using a true Sidekick worker. So if you opt out of the Active Job flow, then you have to say perform async. And if you pass it a record, that's not going to work out particularly nicely. Uh, the other similar thing is that Sidekick does not allow the use of keyword arcs, which I'm going to be honest, I really like keyword arguments, especially for background jobs where you're sort of shuttling data through your system. And... There's almost a lazy evaluation. I want some nicety to make sure that when I am putting something into a background job that I'm actually using the correct call signature, essentially, passing the correct data in the correct shape. Am I passing a record or am I passing the ID? Am I passing a list of options or a single option? Those sort of trade-offs that are really easy to subtly get wrong. I came around on this one because I realized, although Active Job does support keyword arguments. And the way it does that is it just has a JSON serialization format for them. So a keyword argument turns into like a positional array with an associated hash that allows for like the lookup or whatever. Basically, again, they handle the details. You get to use keyword args. It's great. With the exception that when you are actually calling perform later, that method perform later is a method missing type magic method. So it does not actually check the keyword arguments at that point you're basically just passing an options hash as opposed to true keyword arguments that would error because they don't match up. And so when I figured that out, I was like, oh, never mind. This doesn't actually do the thing that I care about. It's a little bit nicer in terms of the signature of the method when you're you're defining your background job itself, but it doesn't actually do any logical checking. It doesn't give me any safety or robustness within my system. So I kind of don't care about that. I did find a project called Sidekick Symbols, uh, which is... It does some things under the hood to how Sidekick serializes and deserializes jobs, which I think gives largely the same behavior as Active Job. So I can now define my Sidekick jobs with keyword arguments. Things will work. I can't use Global ID. That's still out, but that's fine. I can do a little helper method that basically does the same thing as Global ID, uh, or at least close approximation. Uh, but Sidekick symbols lets me have keyword arg-like signatures in my methods. Basically, it is. But again, it doesn't actually do any checking when I'm in queuing a job, and I am sad about that. Yeah, that's another interesting distinction. And I'm unsurprisingly uh, with you that I would favor having keyword arcs and having that additional safety in place. Okay, so I've been keeping track. And so far, it sounds like we have two points because I'm doing a little scorecard here between active job and sidekick. And we have two points in favor of active job because they offer global ID, which then allows us to pass in a record and then it takes care of the serialization for us. And then also keyword arcs, which I agree with you, that's a really nice feature to have in place as well. So I'm curious. So it sounded like you're leaning towards active job, but I don't want to spoil the ending. Uh, yes, I could see why that's what you would be taking away from the conversation thus far. Uh, so again, just to reiterate, active job and sidekick with this sidekick symbols extension, they both support keyword args, kind of. They support defining your job with keyword args and then enqueuing a job, passing something that looks like keyword args, but it ends up nobody's actually checking anything. So it's mostly like a syntactic nicety as opposed to any sort of correctness, which is still nicer, but it's not the thing that I actually want. 
Either way, nobody supports it, so it is not available to me. Therefore, it is not a consideration point. The global ID thing is nice, but it is really, again, it's a nicety more than anything. I have gone, and I'm leaning in the direction of full sidekick and sidekick everywhere as opposed to active job in most cases, but then sidekick when we need it. And that's because sidekick just has a lot more power and a lot more functionality. So in particular, sidekick has a feature which allows you to say it's a block that you put at the top of your sidekick job that says retries exhausted or something. I think it's sidekick retries exhausted is the actual full name at that point, which is really unfortunate in my mind. But anyway, I'll deal. At that point, you know that sidekick has exhausted all of the retries and you can treat it as failed. I'm going to be honest. I went on a quest to find a way to say like, hey, I'm going to put some work into the background. It's really important for me to know if this work succeeds or if it fails. It's very easy to know if it succeeds because that just happens in line in the method. But we can have an exception raised at basically any point. Sidekick does a great job of catching those, of retrying, of having fundamental mechanisms there. But this is the best that I can get for this job failed. And so... Uh, active job, as far as I can tell, does not have anything for this in order to say like, yep, we are done. We are not going to keep working on this. This work has failed. It is dead. Dead is actually, I think, the more correct term for where we're at because failed is a temporary state and then you retry after a failure, whereas dead is this has gone through all of its retries and it will never be run again. Therefore, we should treat this as not having run. And in my case, the thing that I want to do is inform the user that this operation that we were trying to do on their behalf has not succeeded, will not succeed, and please reach out or otherwise deal with the fact that we were unable to do the thing that they asked us to do. That feels like a really important thing for me to be able to do, uh, to be able to communicate back to my users. This is one of those situations where I'm looking at the available options and I'm like, I feel like I can't be the only one who wants to know when something goes wrong. This feels like a thing that's important, but this is the best example that I've found. The sidekick retries exhausted block. Uh, and unfortunately, when I'm using it, it gets yielded the sidekick JSON blob. Uh, deserialized so it's like a ruby hash but it's still this like blob of data it's not the same data that gets passed into perform and so as a result when i want to like look up the record that was associated with it i have to do this like nested dig into the available hash of data and it just feels like this is not this is not a well-paved path this is not something that is a deeply thought about or recommended use case. But again, I don't feel like I'm doing something weird here. Am I doing something weird, Steph? Wanting to tell my users when I was unable to do the thing they asked me to do? That feels like a very rhetorical question. <laughs> it does. I apologize. I'm leading the witness. But in your sincere heart of hearts, what do you think? No, that, that certainly doesn't sound weird. I'm actually thinking back to some of the jobs that cause me stress in regards to knowing when they failed and then being having that communication of knowing that we've exhausted all the retries. And of course, knowing when those retries are exhausted is incredibly helpful. I am intrigued, though, because you're highlighting that active job doesn't have the same option around setting the retry. And I'm trying to recall exactly how it's set, but I feel like I have set the retry count for active job. And maybe, as you mentioned before, that's because it's an abstraction, or I'm not sure if active job actually has that native support. So I feel a little confused there, where I think my default instinct would have been active job does have that retry capability, but it sounds like you've discovered otherwise. I'm not actually sure what active jobs core retry logic or uh, option looks like. So fundamentally, as far as I understand it, active job is an abstraction and under the hood, you are always connecting an adapter. So it's either going to be sidekick or rescue or delayed job or other. And 
each of those systems, whichever system you have as the adapter is the one that's actually going to be managing retries. And so I know like Sidekick happens to have as a default 25 retries. And that spans, I think it's like a two-week exponential backoff. And Sidekick has some very robust logic that they have implemented as the way retries exist within Sidekick. I'm not sure what that would look like if you were trying to express it abstractly because it is slightly different. I know uh, there was some good work that was done on Sidekick to allow the Sidekick options. That's a, a method at the top level of the job, even if it's an active job job, to express the retries. So that may be what you've seen, or there may be truly an abstraction that exists with an active job, and then each adapter needs to know how to handle retries. Uh, but frankly, the like, what can Sidekick do that active job can't? There's a whole bunch of stuff around limiting when you would retry, limiting and queuing a job if there already exists one, when and how do those records get locked. There's a whole bunch of stuff. Sidekick has a lot of power under the hood. And so if we want to be leaning into that, that's why I'm leaning towards like, let's just be Sidekick all the time. Let's become Sidekick experts. Let's accept that as a deep architectural decision within the app as opposed to just relying on the abstraction because fundamentally if we're just using active job we're not going to have access to the full power of sidekick or whatever the underlying system is so sort of that decision that i'm making but i don't know specifically around the retries okay thanks that's really helpful yeah i'm since it's been a while since i've had to make this decision i'm really enjoying you sharing your adventure because I'm trying to think, what's the risk? If you don't use active job, what are the trade-offs? And you'd mentioned some of them around like the global ID and keyword args, which are some niceties. But overall, if you don't go with the abstraction, if you lean into Sidekick, the risk is then you want to migrate to a different enqueuing service. And while that's something that we talk about is mitigating that risk so then you can swap it out, that's also something I have never done or encountered where we've had to make that change. And it feels like a very low risk in my mind. Sidekick feels like the thing you would migrate to, not a thing you would migrate from. Uh, it feels like it is sort of the most powerful. And if anything, I expect at some point we'll be upgrading to Sidekick Pro or Enterprise or whatever the the higher the versions that you pay for, but you get more features there. So in that sense, that is the calculation. That's the, the risk trade-off in my mind is that we're sort of leaning into this technology and coupling ourselves more closely to it. But I don't see that as one that will reassess in the same way that people talk about uh, active record and it being an ORM. And it's like, oh, we're abstracting the database underneath. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm always using Postgres. Please do not take post. I'm not going to switch over to MySQL next next week. That's totally fine. If you start on MySQL, it's unlikely you're going to port over to Postgres. We may port to an entirely like it's a Cassandra column store with a Kafka queue. I don't know, something weird down the road. But it's not going to be swapping out Postgres for MySQL or vice versa. That's like you said, that's probably not a change that's going to happen. But that, I think, is the consideration. The other consideration I have in my mind is active job is the abstraction that exists within Rails. And so I can treat it as sort of a lowest common denominator. And folks joining the project, it's nice to have that familiarity. So perform later is the method on the active job jobs. And it has a certain shape to it. People may be familiar with that. Mailers will automatically use active job just implicitly under the hood. And so there's a familiarity, a discoverability. It's just kind of the up the middle choice. And so if I can stick with that, I think there's a nicety there. But in this case, I think I'm choosing I would like the power and consistency on the sidekick side. And so I'm leaning into that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I liked the other example you provided around things that we're not likely to swap out and Postgres, MySQL, your database being one of them. Uh, in favor of an example that I, I do have for something that I do enjoy wrapping, it's not something that 
adhere to strictly, but I do enjoy it when I have the space to make this choice. So I do ra- like enjoy wrapping HTTP clients, not just because then I can swap out for a different HTTP client, which frankly, that's also rare that I do that, that once I choose an HTTP client, I'm probably pretty happy and I don't need to swap it out. But I really like being able to extend the API specifically if they don't handle error responses in a way that I would like to, or if they raise and then I want to change the API to have a more thoughtful interface and where I don't have to rescue and those errors, but instead I can interact with this object that then represents an error state. So That was just one example that came to mind for things that I do enjoy having an abstraction around and not just so I can swap it out because that feels like a a very low risk, but more frankly, so I can extend the API. I definitely share the like I almost always wrap APIs or I try and hide whatever the implementation detail is, whether it be like HTTP party or Faraday or whatever it is that I'm using. I'm trying to hide that like deeply within the system and then I have whatever API client that we define. And that's that's what we're interacting with. It's interesting that you bring up errors and exceptions there, because that's the one other thing that has caused me this, what I'm describing now seems perhaps like a, oh, here's just a list of pros and cons, a simple decision was made, and there we are. This represents some real soul searching on my part, uh, if we will. And one of the last things that I ran into that was just so frustrating is that Sidekick is explicitly built around the idea of exceptions. Sidekick retries if there is an exception raised in the job. Otherwise, it treats it as success. And that's it. That is the entirety of it. That is the story. But if you raise an exception in a job, then you can't test that job because now it's raising an exception. You can't like say you can't test retries or like this retry exhausted block that I'm trying to lean into. I'm like, I want to put that in a feature spec and say like, oh, this job goes in the background, but it's in a failure state. And therefore, the user sees the failure message. Sorry, can't do that because the only way to actually fail a job is via an exception. And I've actually gone to some links in this application to try to introduce more structured data flow. I've talked a bunch about the command objects and the dry monads and all of those things. And I've really loved them where I've gotten to use them. But then I run into one of these edge cases where like Sidekick's like, no, 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 you can't do that. And so now I have parts of my system that very purposefully return data as opposed to raising an exception. And I just have to turn around and directly raise that failure as an exception. And it just feels less expressive. I actually just ran into the identical thing with Pundit. They have a little bit better control over it. I can choose whether or not the I want the raising version or not. But I just, I see exceptions everywhere. And I want a little more <laughs> discrete data flow. That is my dream. So anyway, I chose Sidekick. It's the summary here. <laughs> And slowly, we're going to migrate entirely to Sidekick, and I'm going to be totally fine with it, and I am done griping now. This is your own little October Halloween movie that I see exceptions everywhere. They're so spooky. (laughs) That's cool about Pundit. I'm not sure I knew that, that you get to essentially turn on or off that exception flow behavior. On one hand, I'm like, that's nice. You get the option. On the other hand, I'm like, well, let's just not do it. <laughs> let's just never raise on people. But at least they give people the option. That seems really cool. They do give the option. I think you can choose different strategies there. And also, if we're being honest, I'm newer to Pundit and I was just using it wrong. So there was that, like there's the authorized method. I was using that, which raises by default as the thing. And that's a configuration that we have. And I think that we want, but I actually wanted to use a different thing, which was to get the policy object and ask it a question. I wanted to ask like, is this enabled or not? Can a user do this or not? That should not raise an exception. I'm just asking a question. We're just being real chill about this. I just want to know some information. Let's flow some data through our system. We don't need exceptions for that. Why are you yelling at me? I just have a question. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. 
I figured out how to be easy on that front. Sidekick apparently has no be easy mode, but that's fine. You know what? We're going to make it work and it's going to be fine. Uh, but it is interesting deciding which of these facets of the system that I'm building do I really care about? Which are the ones where I'm like, whatever, just pick something and we'll move forward. It's not a big deal versus we're actually going to be doing a lot of work in the background. This is a thing that I care about deeply. I want to know about failure and success. I want to really understand that and have a robust answer to what our architecture looks like there. Similarly, Pundit for authorization. I believe that authorization will be a critical aspect of our system. It's typically a pretty important thing, but for us, I think we're going to have different types of users who can log in and see different subsets of data and having a consistent concrete way that we have chosen to implement that that we are able to test, that we're able to verify. I think that's another core competency within the app, but choosing, you only get to have so many of those. You can only be like really good at a couple things. And so I'm in that place where I'm like, which are our, which are our top five, what I say, are the things that I care a lot about. And then which are the things where I'm like, I don't know, whatever, just run with it. Just a little bit ago, I, I came so close to singing because you said that I want to know a phrase again and that I'm realizing is a trigger for me and a song where I want to sing. I, I held it back this time. It's smart. You got to learn. Anytime you sing on mic, that is a part of the permanent record. Edward Lovell at ThoughtBot, since I sang in a recent episode, he did the delightful thing where then he he grabbed that clip of where you talk a little bit and then I sing and then encouraged everyone to go listen to it. And in which I responded, I'm like, I would highly recommend that you save your ears and don't listen to it. But yes, singing on the mic, it's it's a thing. I do it from time to time. Can't hold it back. We all do. But since it doesn't seem that you're going to sing in this moment, I think I can probably wrap up my odyssey of choosing between sidekick and active job. I hope those details were useful to anyone other than me. It was an adventure, so I figured I'd share it. But uh, yeah, that, that about wraps it up on my side. And now a quick break to hear from today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is leading edge application performance monitoring that's designed to help Rails developers quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. With a developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, you can quickly pinpoint and resolve those performance abnormalities like N plus one queries, slow database queries, memory bloat, and much more. Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails let you rest easy, knowing Scout's on watch and resolving performance issues before your customers ever see them. Scout has also launched its new error monitoring feature add-on for Python applications. Now you can connect your error reporting and application monitoring data on one platform. See for yourself why developers call Scout their best friend and try our error monitoring and APM free for 14 days, no credit card needed. And as an added-on bonus for Bike Shed listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com forward slash bike shed. That's scoutapm.com forward slash bike shed. So I would love to talk about an SSL error that I encountered recently. So one of the important processes in our application is sending data to another system. And while sending data to that other system, we started seeing the following error that read certificate verify failed. And then in parens, it states unable to get local issuer certificate. So upon seeing that error, I initially thought, okay, something is wrong with their SSL certificate or their SSL configuration, and that's not something that I have control over and can fix, so we should reach out and let them know to take a look at their SSL config. 
But it turns out that their team already knew about the issue. They had recently updated or renewed their SSL cert, and they saw our messages were no longer being processed, and they were reaching out to us for help. So at that point, I'm still pretty sure that it's related to something on their end, and it's not something that I can really fix on our end, but we can help them troubleshoot. Maybe there's a workaround that we can add to still get messages processing while they're looking into their SSL config. It it seemed like they still just needed help. So it was something that was still worth diving into. So going back to that first error, I want to talk a little bit about it because I realized that I understand SSL like just enough, like just the surface to get by as a developer. But then every time that I run into a specific error with it, then I, I really have to refresh my understanding as to what could be wrong so then I can troubleshoot more effectively. So for anyone that could use a refresher on that certificate verification process, when your browser or your server is connecting to a site that uses SSL, then your browser server, whichever one you're using, is going to download that site certificate and verify a couple things. So it's going to check, does the certificate contain the domain name of the website? So essentially, you gave us a certificate. Is this your certificate? Does it match the site that we're connecting to? Is the cert issued by a trusted certificate authority? So did someone that we trust give you this certificate? And is the cert still valid or has it expired? So that part, pretty straightforward. The second part unable to get local issuer certificate. So that's the part I was less certain about. And I took this to mean that they had passed two of those three checks, that their cert included the site's name and it had not expired. But for some reason, we aren't able to determine if their cert was issued by someone that we should trust. So following that journey, my next question was, so what are they, what are they giving us? So this is a tool that I don't get to use very often, but I reached for OpenSSL and specifically the sclient command, which connects to a specified domain and prints all certificates in the certificate chain. You may already know this, but the certificate chain is basically a fancy way of saying, show me all the certificates necessary to prove your site certificate was authorized by a trusted certificate authority. I did not know that. Okay, I I honestly didn't either. I like that you thought I would, though. So thank you. But no. Yeah, it's one of those areas of SSL where I I know just enough. But that was something that was new to me. I thought there was a site certificate. And I didn't realize that there is this chain of certificates that has to be honored. So going back and looking through that output of the certificate chain, that's what highlighted to me that their server was giving us their certificate and saying, hey, you should trust our site certificate. It's legit because it was authorized by, let's say, XYZ certificate. And so if it were a proper certificate chain, then they would give us that XYZ cert. And essentially, we can use this chain of certificates to get back to a trusted authority that then everybody knows that we can trust. However, they weren't actually giving us a reference certificate. They were giving us something else. So essentially, they were saying like, hey, look at our certificate and look at this very trustworthy reference that we have. But they were actually failing to give us that reference. So to bring it all home, uh, because we can download that intermediate certificate that they reference, that is something that is publicly accessible. That's why we're able to then verify each certificate that's provided in that chain. We could go and download that intermediate certificate from that certificate authority We could combine that with their site-specific certificate, include that in our request to their system, and then complete the certificate chain, and boom, we're back in business. But it was was quite a journey. That is quite the journey. Uh, And yeah, I definitely, I knew very little of that, although everything you're saying makes sense and sort of like, I have a bunch of 
cubby holes in my brain for SSL knowledge. And though the words you said all fit into the spaces that I have in my brain, but I didn't know a bunch of those pieces. So thank you for sharing that. SSL and cryptography more generally, or like password hashing or things like that, occupy this special place in my brain where I'm both really interested in them. And I will occasionally research them. If, or if I see a blog article, I'll be like, oh yeah, I want to read more about this, like password hashing and what's a salt and what's a pepper and what are we doing there? And what's bcrypt versus scrypt? What are all these things? This is cool. And almost the like arms race on the two sides of how do we how do we demonstrate trust in a secure manner on the internet but at the same time i am not allowed to do anything with this information like i outsource this as much as humanly possible because it's one of those things that you just should not do yourself and ssl perhaps even more so like i have configured aspects of my password hashing but i 100 just lean on the fact that let's encrypt exists in the world and prior to that it was a little more work but Frankly, earlier on in my career, I wasn't dealing with the SSL parts of things, but I'm I'm so grateful to Let's Encrypt as a project that exists. And now on almost every platform that I work with, there's just a checkbox for please do the SSL work for me, make it good, make it work, and then I will be happy. And I'm so glad that that organization exists and really push the envelope. Also, like I forget what it was, but it was only a couple like three years ago where SSL was not actually nearly as common as it is now. And now it is pervasive and everywhere and all of the sites have it. And so that is a wonderful thing. But I don't actually know much. I know that I should have it. I must have it. I should force it. That's true. So uh, and push that out as far as I can in the like, all the way out to the CDN or whatever it is, just upgrade all those connections. But yeah, it's I don't know a lot about SSL. Would you say they they push it the envelope? Are you trying to get me to sing? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I did want to know if you get the reference. <laughs> The song like push it real good the song yeah okay yeah you got it i will just say the lyrics i shall not sing the lyrics i would say that though yes yes they do that thank you for acknowledging my very terrible reference circling back just a little bit too in regards to this is i'm i'm with you this is a world that is not one that i i'm very deeply technical in and something that i i learned a fair amount while troubleshooting this particular ssl error and it was it was very interesting but there's also that concern where it's like, that was interesting, and we worked around the issue, but this also feels very fragile. So we still haven't fixed it on their end, where they are sending the wrong certificate. So then that's why we had to do more investigative work, and then download the certificate that they meant to send us, and then send back a complete certificate chain so that we don't have this error anymore. But should they change anything about their certificate, should they renew anything like that, then suddenly we're going to break again. And then the next developer is going to have to go through the same journey. And this wasn't a light journey. This was a good half day journey to figure out what was going on and to spend the time and then to also get that fix out to production. So it's a meaningful task that I don't want anyone else to, to have to go through. But we are reliant on someone else updating their configuration. So on one hand, we're in a good spot until they are able to update. But on the other hand, I wrote a heck of a commit message for the next person just describing like, friend, just grab some coffee. We're going to chat. It's a very small code change. But but you need to know the scoop. So should you need to replicate this because they've changed something or if this happens because we work with a number of systems that we send data to. So if someone else uh, should run into a similar issue, they will understand some of the troubleshooting techniques that I used and be able to look up that chain and find out if there's a missing cert or something else they need to provide. So it's still, it feels like, it feels like a win, but I'm also nervous for future selves, future developers. 
So there's another approach that I haven't mentioned yet, but it was often a top recommendation for when dealing with SSL errors. And specifically, it was turning off SSL verification. And I saw that and I was like, well, that won't work. I'm I'm definitely sending sensitive, important data, and I need to verify that who I'm sending this to is really the person that I want to send this data to. So that was not an option for me, but it made me a little nervous. Well, okay, it made me very nervous how often that was an approach that people would recommend to be like, oh, it's okay. Just turn off SSL. You'll be fine. Like, don't worry about it. I feel like this so perfectly fits into the, like, some of our work is just sort of finding the information and connecting the pieces together and making it work. But some of it is that heuristic sense, that voice in the back of your head is like, wait, I'm sorry, what? You want me to just turn off the security perimeter and hope that the velociraptors won't come in? Like, that doesn't seem like it's going to end well. I don't, I think I'm going to, I get that that's an easy option that we have available to us right now and we'll solve the immediate problem. But then let's play this out. There's four, five Jurassic Park movies now that tell the story of that. So let's be careful. It always ends super well though, right? Like it's totally fun. <laughs> Exclusively. <laughs> Although it's funny that you mention OpenSSL No Verify because just this past week I used that very same configuration. I think it was okay in my case. I'm pretty sure. Uh, but it is interesting because when I saw it, I was like, oh no, can't do that. Certainly not that. Don't turn off the security feature. That's the wrong way to deal with the uh, the issue. But in the particular case that I'm working with, I'm using Redis, Heroku Redis in particular, in a Heroku configuration. And the nature of how Heroku configures their Redis instances and the connectivity to our app and to our dyno, I forget why. I read an article. They wrote it. Heroku wrote it. I trust them. They're good. That's part. I've outsourced my trust to people that I do trust. This is, you know, the trust chain. It actually maps really well to the certificate trust chain. Like that's, I trust that Heroku has taken security deeply seriously. And for some reason, their configuration of Redis requires that I turn on OpenSSL no verify mode. So I'm using this now both in Sidekick and then we're using our Redis instance for our Rails cache as well. So in both cases, I said like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. I use the don't worry about it configuration and I didn't love it, but I think it's okay. And, and partly I'm trying to say this into the internet radio right now, just in case anyone's listening. It's like, oh, oh no, 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 no. You can't do that. That's bad. Uh, so I'm willing to be deeply wrong on the internet in favor of someone telling me and then I get to get out in front of it. But I think it's fine. Pretty sure it's fine. It should be fine. I love, love, love how you gave a very visual example of velociraptors. And then you're like, oh, but I turned it off. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start sending you a velociraptor gif each day. I hope you do. I hope the internet holds you accountable to that. Uh, <laughs> and I, I really look forward to that moving forward because that's a great way to start the day. Well, it doesn't need to start the day, but I look forward to them. I am really intrigued because uh, I'm with you where there, like you said, there are certain entities that are in our trust chain where it's like, hey, you are running this for us. And so I, I do have faith and trust in you that you wouldn't steer me wrong and provide a bad recommendation. Someone on Stack Overflow telling me to turn off SSL verify, ugh, that's not in my trust chain. Heroku or someone else telling me I'm going to take it a little more seriously. And so I'm I'm also interested in hearing from what you say you're speaking into the the internet phone, would you say? I think I said the internet radio, but in a, yeah, in a way. I mean, we're recording over Skype right now, so in a manner of speaking, we're on the internet phone to make our internet radio show. Oh, goodness. Uh, the internet radio. I'm also intrigued to hear if other people are like, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, that sounds like an interesting scenario, because I would think you'd still want your connection to 
you said it's for Redis, so you still want that connection to be verified. But then if Redis itself can't have a specific, yeah, we're, we're, get, we're testing the boundaries of my SSL knowledge here as to how the heck you would even establish that SSL connection or the verification process. Me too. Uh, and it also exists in an interesting space where Heroku is rather clear in their documentation about this. And it is it was a surprising claim when I saw it. And so I don't expect them to be flippant about a thing that is important. Like if they're like, no, 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 it is okay. You can turn off the security thing. Don't worry. I trust that they're not just like, ah, we didn't think about it too much, but we figured why not? It's not a big deal. Like I'm sure that they have thought about it deeply because it is an important thing. And so in a weird way, my trust of them and the severity of what this thing represents, I'm like, oh yeah, I super trust that because you're not going to get a major thing wrong. You might get a minor, small, subtle thing wrong, but this is a pretty major configuration change. As I say it, I'm, I'm now getting more worried. I'm now like, I feel fine about this. This doesn't seem like a problem at all. But then I keep saying stuff and I'm like, oh no. <laughs> That's why I love having a podcast. I find out things about myself as I talk into a microphone to you. We come here to share our deep, dark developer secrets. Spooky developer therapy. But just to clarify, even though you've turned off the SSL Verify, you're still connecting over SSL. Yes, I believe that's the case. And if I'm remembering, I think the nature of how this works is they're using a self-signed certificate because of shared infrastructure or something something that made sense when I read it. But it was the idea they are doing a self-signed certificate. Therefore, to what you were talking about earlier, there isn't the certificate authority and the, sequ- uh, the, the chain uh, of those because it's self-signed. And so they are not a trusted certificate authority. Therefore, that certificate that they have generated would not be trusted. But it does still allow for the SSL handshake and then communication to happen over SSL. It's just that fundamental question of trust. I'm saying like, in this case, for reasons, it's okay. Trust me that I trust them. We're good. Which again, I don't feel great about. But I think, yes, it is still SSL, but it is a self-signed certificate. So we have to make this configuration change. Yeah, all of that makes sense. And it certainly sounds like you have uh, been very thoughtful about that change and put in some investigative work. Ooh, so on, on that note, I have a very unrelated bad joke for you. I'm very excited. All right, here we go. All right, so what do you call an alligator wearing a vest? I don't know. What do you call an alligator wearing a vest? An investigator. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, shall we wrap up? Oh, let's wrap up. We should also include a link in the show notes to the episode where you told the joke about the elephant hiding in the trees, because that's one of my favorite jokes. You just slayed me with that one. And (laughs) yeah, but on that note, yes, let us wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Mandy Moore. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes, as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me on Twitter at S And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or you can reach us at host at bike via email. Thanks so much for listening to the bike shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.